Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water and sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it, is, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The word of the Lord. Our psalm today is Psalm 1. We will read responsibly by whole verse. Blessed is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, or stood in the way of sinners, and has not sat in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the waterside, that will bring forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also shall not wither, and the Lord, whatever he does, shall prosper. As for the ungodly, it is not so with them, but they are like the chaff which the wind scatters from the face of the earth. Therefore, the ungodly shall not be able to stand in the judgment, neither the sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 6 starting in verse 37. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to St. Luke. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do my words is like a man who built his house on a ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. This is the continuation. What we just heard in the Gospel of Luke is the continuation of what's commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. This is, so what David preached on last week, this is still all part of that same talk that Jesus is giving to his followers. It's a parallel to what's found in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is basically, this is a gospel proclamation that Jesus has just started his public ministry, and he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what he is doing over and over and over. And so this, this is a message from the king about what his kingdom looks like. I want, I want to say a, a quick note as we begin. If you read this passage in Luke, and then you read the corresponding passage in Matthew, you'll see that some things are there in Matthew that aren't there in Luke, and vice versa. And you'll see that some things maybe appear in a little bit of a different order. And you can hear um, unbelievers or people who are skeptical about the Bible will take these two passages. They see, your silly little book doesn't even make any sense. Between these two accounts, it can't even get straight what happened when Jesus was preaching this sermon. See how silly all of this is. And I just want to say, there's a really good short explanation for why these two things are different between Luke and Matthew. The reason is, they were two different sermons. One was preached on a mountain, above Galilee. The other one was preached on a flat place. And I can tell you, as a preacher, once you've written a really good sermon, the chance to do it over and over and over again is pretty sweet. And so I, 
I have a sermon that I've preached to four different churches, and the next church that, that asks me to come preach to them and no one there has been from the other ones, now we're going to go for five. So this is, it, it would not be uncommon for a traveling preacher or teacher to have a message that he wanted to bring to the people and have it be the same message. Think of, think of a politician. Think of, of someone going around making a campaign, a campaign speech. This is Jesus' campaign speech about the kingdom of God. And so the, the bones of the speech are largely going to be the same, although sometimes things might happen in a different order. So, last week, Jesus pronounced blessings and woes on the people. A very traditional biblical theme for what a prophet, would, when bringing the word of God, pronouncing blessings and woes. And here he goes even further to, to use illustrations to paint a picture of what life is like in the kingdom of God, how we should live in light of who the king is. These are primarily pictures of unity, pictures of the pursuit of God, and, and also pictures of the standard by which this kingdom is run. I want to pray as we open God's word. God, the challenges that Jesus gives us in these, in these passages are simple, very difficult. They are not easy. And I pray that we would not be, I pray that we would hear them rightly, that we would not be overburdened by them as impossibilities, but we would also not dismiss them as pure poetry or something that, that we strive for that we can get to. I pray that we would hear them rightly, that you press this word down to our lives, that it would affect how we think and how we act. In Christ's name. So, if you have a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of the blue ones on the table in the back. Verse 37 of Luke chapter 6. If you do a Google search for most misunderstood verses in the Bible, this verse will always be either at or near the top. There are books written about these. Um, there's, you can find long articles about what are the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Luke 6.37 always comes in near the top. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. What does Jesus mean by this? Because if you read it wrong, you might end up thinking that this verse basically just allows anyone to explain away any and all behavior that other people might find unsavory or judgeworthy. And I've done that with this verse. I've done this. You know, doesn't the Bible tell me that you can't judge? Well, you can't judge me for what I'm doing. And, and, and I don't mean the silly little things that I don't want to be judged for. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in the kitchen at three in the morning with like a, a, a jar of peanut butter and a, and a can of chocolate frosting and a spoon. My wife comes in and she looks at me and I'm horrified like a deer in the headlights. I'm like, don't judge me. I don't mean like that. I mean like stuff that matters. Stuff that matters where I have tried to use this verse before. To say, well, who are you to judge me? Your, your, your book says that you can't judge me. So I've thought that a bunch. Because one of the ways that the Bible gets truly dangerous is if you take one verse and rip it right out of its context and try to act like that verse can can be the, the complete word of God. If you misread this, you're going to end up with a version of life where everybody gets to do what they want, where everybody gets to be a libertine, 
where nothing is forbidden and everything is permitted. Because nobody gets to comment on the rightness of anything that anybody else Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that the kind of world that you can imagine that Jesus thinks that we should live in? Is that the, the most the best possible way for human flourishing. I think the key to this depends on how you define the word judge. And that's really, that's really key. Um, judge is one of those words that can have a big range of meaning. It can be anything between judging between two things, like I think carrots are good and I think celery is bad. I'm making a judgment. But it can be bigger things than that. I might decide that Seeing a man help a little old lady across the street is better than seeing that same man knock that little old lady to the ground. Rushing pants. I'm making a judgment. And I might even want to act on that judgment. I might try to see that the man is applauded doing the first thing and actually punished doing the second thing. By breaking Christ's command when I pass that kind of judgment on that person's action. We see people throughout the entire Bible Men and women of God, good godly men and women, who will actually judge other people's actions. John the Baptist called the crowds that came into the wilderness to hear him. He called them a brood of vipers. Sounds kind of judgmental. Jesus, in this paragraph, I'm sorry, in this speech, like one paragraph after he says, do not judge, he calls people hypocrites when they, when they can't see what's directly in front of them. The Apostle Paul, writing letters to new church plants, referred to some people as dogs, and says that if anyone preaches a message contrary to the one that he is preaching, that they should be damned. Sounds pretty judgmental. But the judgment that Jesus is talking here is not about weighing someone's actions in light of God's word. That's not what this is. The judgment that Jesus is talking about here, the clue to it is the fact that he's kind of speaking in Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, like when you read the Psalms, um, oftentimes there's the first half of the sentence and the second half of the sentence. And it's kind of the same way of saying, or it's, it's two different ways of saying the same thing, right? So what he says here is, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. And the condemn thing gives us a clue about what he means by judging. It is, it is a heart attitude. It is looking at someone and effectively saying, I'm better than you are. That's the key. The condemning and the judging are pretty much synonyms in here. When you condemn someone, you're saying, you're not fit to be around me. Not, not, not even just that you're not fit to be around me anymore. You're not fit to exist anymore. If I'm condemning you, I'm basically trying to sit in a place where I am putting myself in the of God. I am making myself the judge. So Jesus is not saying everybody gets to do whatever they want all the time and nobody gets to tell anybody else their choices aren't good. Because central to Jesus' message is that there is a kingdom of God and that kingdom of God is breaking into this world. And if there's a kingdom of God, then there has to be a king. One of the things that Jesus is saying here is there is a kingdom. It has a king, and it's not you. R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said Jesus is talking here about an attitude or about a mindset that is sometimes found within the church to the church's embarrassment. A mindset of 
criticism that, hear me, God does not enjoy. The basic posture that we are to have toward the world is one of charity that covers a multitude. God has not called us, Stroll says, God has not called us to be the policemen of society. He has called us to discern between good and evil. And so those two things are both true. So when you think about do not judge, that's not to say that we can't tell the difference between right and wrong. It's to say that we do not condemn, that we do not sit in a place where we believe ourselves to be fit to judge someone eternally. And how do we know this good from evil? It doesn't come out of our own hearts. And it doesn't come out of our own desires. It comes out of the proclamations of the kingdom of God. It comes out of the gospel. Living within the structures that God gives us. Living within the structures of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. Where people actually build one another up rather than tear one another down. Where they look for the good in what someone is doing. What does that get you? Like, what's the benefit? Jesus is very clear. And he uses a metaphor that's a little obscure. But he's saying that if you live this way, live in a way where you do not judge, so therefore you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and so therefore you will not be condemned. It will be as though you are overflowing with riches. That's what he's saying. The way that people would, would kind of wear their robes back then, there would be this little pocket that would be formed in the front, and that was where you would keep your money purse, or your oil, or your wineskin, or your snack for the day, or like whatever it was that you were traveling with that was valuable. That's where your valuables went. This little pouch area front, kind of belt level. And so when you sat down, it would basically be at your lap. So when Jesus is saying that to live in light of the gospel, to live in a way where we do not seek to judge, where we do not seek to condemn, the benefit of that to all of us, because he's speaking to all of us, everything that he's saying here is second person plural. So it's, y'all need to do this. The benefit to all of us is a huge return of blessings. As though someone had tried to fill your pockets with so many blessings that no matter how much they pressed it down and shook it up, that it would still overflow. That's living before the face of the king. And that's realizing that it's him and not us that gets to be the judge. And each one of us as we think about do not judge or you will be judged, do not condemn or you will be judged, as we think about the fact that there actually is a judge, firstly, and most importantly, it's not me, but secondly, like, there's a judge. Each one of us is going to face judgment. It doesn't matter how you answer the question, do you want to be judged? Like, that doesn't really matter. Each and every one of us is actually going to face judgment. That can either be an incredibly terrifying thing, or it can be a cause for celebration. But in either case, I am quite confident that it is going to be an uncomfortable thing. Someone is going to sit in a position of final authority over me and my life. Earlier in the, in the passage when I said that Jesus called the religious leaders of the day hypocrites, he gives possibly the, the best and, and most ridiculous illustration of what that means, 
but hypocrisy. Verse 41. Do you not see the speck that is in... Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, here, let me take that speck out of your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. The way our eyes work, we will oftentimes look right past something that's always in our view. And I actually mean that very literally. Your eyes can always see your nose all the time. It's just that your brain chooses to ignore it when it interprets that signal. But if you really focus, you're always looking at your nose. It's just that your brain filters that out. This is not that un, it's not that dissimilar to how we view our own sin. Our brain frames our world in a way so that we can make sense of it, but sometimes we miss what is literally right in front of our face. We think of our sin versus somebody else's sin. Jesus says that we can look around, we can somehow look around the massive problems we have in our own life so that we can focus on the tiny perfections. I do this all the time. It's just part of who we are. There's a reason why Jesus is giving this commandment, and it's not that it's uncommon. It's that it's incredibly common. The brilliant illustration of the don't judge command is when you start to realize the log that's in your own eye, you start to see the ridiculousness of not dealing with your own stuff, but rather trying to look around that and focus on something. We love to excuse our way our own behavior while crystallizing someone else's behavior as part of who they are, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, let me, let me explain that. Um, Jay, why did you do this, that, or the other? Well, it's because I was tired. It's because I was hungry. It's because I'm stressed. It's because the other person did it first, and so I can do it too. It's because... Um, it's because I'm an Enneagram 8 and they're a 6, or it's because, you know, I'm a Scorpio and they're a Cancer. There's a lot of reasons why I did the thing that I did. And all I'm trying to do is deflect, deflect, deflect. Well, okay. Jay, why do you think so-and-so did that? Oh, it's because they're bad. It's who they are. I mean, they're just, they're mean, they're selfish, they're nasty. It's who they are. So in every case in that, when I'm explaining away my own behavior, it ends up being that my behavior is situational, but their behavior is definitional. My behavior is, is based on the stimuli that were going around me at the time, but their behavior is part of their identity, it's who they are. My, my log, their spell. Pastor of a church that I used to put it this way, actually just a few weeks ago. He was talking to a friend of his that was going through a marital problem. Merit, <clears throat> marital problem. But this is actually true of any interpersonal relationship. What he said was, until both of you, each person in the, in the relationship, until both of you are more offended by the hurt that you've caused than by the hurt that you've endured, it's never going to get any better. He said, you guys are both fighting for yourselves against one another rather than fighting against yourselves for one another. That's the root of your problem. He's absolutely right. 
when we really examine our own behavior, when we see how deep our sin is, how big that log is, more than ever, the ways that we have failed should grieve us much more ways and, and the ironic thing about me reading this quote is that it was said by a pastor who in the past 10 years has had so many egregious and numerous moral, failing, moral failings and cases of spiritual abuse that the elders took the pulpit away from him and kicked him out of their church. Very public fall, very far, and very fast. And sometimes, even as I'm reflecting on the wisdom of these words, sometimes that's the first thing I think about this guy. Speck, rather than my log. I don't think about all the good that he did. I don't think about all the people that he helped. I don't think about the, the beauty of the gospel that he preached. I think about his fall, his speck, my log. Ways that we have wronged, ways that we have wronged, could offend us much more in ways that others have wronged us. How many times have I used a sense of my being wronged as a justification for my own sin? How many times have I looked at the conscious actions that I'm deliberately taking and say, sure, this isn't great, like I know that, but I'm not nearly as bad as that guy. That's the lesson of the speck in the law. I'm just willing to like hand wave away the stuff that I do in my life. But I'm willing to, across the room, see a tiny imperfection in your life and loudly condemn that while ignoring mine. And the hilarious part, if you think about the speck and the log, is that according to Jesus, mine's worse. What I'm doing, what I'm able to ignore, what I'm willfully looking around in order to, to pick nits in someone else, mine's worse. But I have to be able to look at it have to be able to look. I am quite confident that when Jesus preached this message, that this was a radical statement his day, especially in a day where external behaviors were as valued as, as where your heart is. I am also quite confident that this is a radical message for today. If we spent less time looking at, at other people's behaviors in light of our own standards. And that's the key, and that's how we get back to the don't judge thing, right? If we spent less time looking at other people's behaviors in light of our own standards and more time looking at our own behavior bathed in the light of Christ, imagine the blessings that this would bring. Bring a, a, a bountiful measure, pressed down, shaken together, running into our laps, overflowing. That's the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus is painting. And, and that's what the fruit is that he's also talking about. The fruit of, of us living in the way of Christ. It produces abundant fruit, good fruit. If we act like thorn bushes, we can't expect that we will grow figs. Living in the light of Christ produces good fruit that will feed ourselves and others. Sitting in condemnation of others is just thorns and thistles. And again, that's not to say that we can't call out sin when we see it. We have to. That's important. Of course. I mean, it, it would be ridiculous. We, we have to be able to say, brother, sister, I see how your life is. And you and I both know that that is not how Christ 
wants his people to live. So what you're doing is sin, and it's wicked, and Christ bled and died for this. That's the weird thing. That Christ was the one who paid the penalty for our sin. He was the ransom that brought us back. He was the victory over death, right? So that those who are in Christ do not ever need to die. Because Christ was both the lamb, but also, if you look at the end of the Bible, Christ is both the lamb and judge. He's the sacrifice, and he's the standard by which everything is measured. He's the, he's the one who died so that we could live, and he's also the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ is the objective standard by which all of this is if, if we don't have a standard outside of ourselves by which, we can, by which things are judged, then, then everything is relative. Then it's not too long before we're down the road to nothing is forbidden, everything is permitted. And it's not too long until basically we're, we're living in the Old Testament book of Judges where it says that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own mind. And I can tell you, if you have not read that book, that is not a positive statement of human flourishing. But there is a standard. There is a standard, and it's the one who sacrificed. The standard is the one who gave his life for us. And there is a judge, and it's the same guy. And each, of, each and every one of us is going to be judged. Like it or not, each and every one of us stand before the judgment seat. And like I said, that can either be an incredibly terrifying thing or it can be an ultimately good thing, but in every case, it is going to be uncomfortable. I mean, eternity is a long time, so I have to imagine that for every single person, that judgment might literally be a real-time real movie of everything that you've ever done. Uncomfortable. To stand in the face of a holy God and see broadcast on a screen everything I've done and thought. So I have no idea if that's what it is. I have absolutely no idea. But I know that we are going to be judged at the final day. All of us. Imagine if in the presence of a perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly holy creator who had to stand with only your own merits. That would crush anybody. That's judgment. So why is that good news? Why is that good news for us, that there is a judge and that we will be judged? The reason that it's good news is not because I think for a second that I can kind of sneak in under the wire of judgment where my good deeds maybe have a chance of outweighing my bad deeds. It's not because I think that I might be able to get God to grade me on a curve. Because God's standard is perfection. We see that in Adam and Eve in the Bible. We see that throughout the Bible. Keeping the law of God perfectly is God's standard, perfection. The righteous will inherit the earth and the wicked will not. We heard that in the psalm. Who's righteous? One who does slightly more good things than bad things? The one who really wants to please God, even though he keeps doing bad things? No, the, the righteous is the one who keeps God's law perfectly. And so our lives are examined by this standard of perfection. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were one day condemned to die. They surely did die. You and I have sinned. 
we are condemned to one day die, we surely will die. Unless, unless, unless. Unless we are united and, and, and wedded to the one person who kept the law perfectly. Unless we are united and wedded to that one person who can, who can, stay, who can say, judge me by my actions alone. And was then found spotless. So unless that one person who has kept the law perfectly steps in for us and stands in our place and says, I am willing to take the punishment, even though I have done nothing wrong, I will take the punishment. And not only that, not only do we get to give him our sin, but then he gives us his righteousness. This is something called the great exchange. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 31. God made the one who did not sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who did not sin become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness. So when we are judged, and we will be judged, we get to plead the blood of Christ. We get to say that, that our sins are covered by the shed blood of Christ, and we know that the good works that we do are because we have Christ in us. So to those who do not know Christ, judgment is incredibly terrifying. To those of us who do know Christ, the idea of, being, the idea of judgment might be uncomfortable, but it is ultimately going to be celebratory because that's another chance for us to see Christ's work in us. So, going back to the beginning of this passage, when we see someone doing something wrong, when we see someone living in a way that displeases God, are we prevented from naming that? No. No, we can, we can call that out. Yesterday, Gus and I were, were in a parking lot riding his scooter, and he was going down a hill, and he started to get going a little too fast, and the, the, the stick started to wobble, and he was careening right into a giant hedge of thorn bushes. And I, and I yelled out at him, stop, 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 you have to slow down. You're heading toward a thorn bush. I don't want to see him steer into danger. And so when we see someone else doing something wrong, we can call it out because we want what is best for them, not because we want to feel better about ourselves. We are in no place to pass final judgment because it turns out that despite my best efforts at judging people, I am a crummy God. I am not the standard by which someone should receive their work. Neither are you. So our actions, our actions taken on their own merit, apart from the work of Christ, are nothing. They are, as Paul says, they are filthy rags. Our actions taken on our own, apart from the work of Christ, are what Jesus would call a house without a foundation built on nothing other than our own hopes. It's built on nothing other than my frail humanity as some, sort of, as some sort of hope of a standard. So none of us, not a one of us, is in a position to pass final judgment on anyone or to condemn or to say, you don't deserve to be here, but I do. But when, when our actions, when our heart's desire informing our actions, when that flows out of a love of Christ and a knowledge of him as king and savior, then that's the house with the firm foundation. 
that's the house that we all build together because, again, this is a y'all thing. This is not a you individual. When, when we build this kind of house based on loving one another, based on, on calling one another out when we need to be called out because we love one another, then that's the house with the firm foundation. When the floods come, the stream breaks against the house, but it cannot shake it because it has been well built. Because it's been built on the rock, that's, that's what life in the kingdom of God is like. God, we want to see more of what life in the kingdom of God is like. Will you show us more of Jesus? We want to see more of what life in the kingdom of God is like. Will you show us more of his plan for how we for how we love one another. God, those times where we want to condemn, where we want to pretend that we can sit in a place of, of final judgment, will you, will you help us to look down long enough to see our nose? Will you help us to look down long enough to see the log that is in our own eye? And this week, Lord, will you remind me to grieve my own, to grieve the offense that I have caused more than because of Jesus.